angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words, your eternal words. These words that you spoke to the leadership of a church that no longer exists. Give us ears to hear as a local church and as local believers right here in Granbury, Texas, that we would apply the truth that you shared with that congregation so long ago. As though it were today, Holy Spirit, make these words real and alive and help us, Lord, to apply it to our own condition. May we leave here with our vision higher, looking to you, Lord, for the values and motivations for our life's purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in a series called Seven. We're looking at the seven letters that Jesus personally dictated to John to send to the leadership of seven different local churches in the area now known as Turkey. And from each of these letters, we're gaining questions. Today is letter number five. We're not necessarily taking them in sequence. Uh, the letter to the Pergamos Church, I think, is the third letter. And it's our fifth time we're talking about this. But the questions we've looked at is, are you all you say you are? You know, we say we are Christians, but are we, are we, who, we, are we who we say we are? Are you almost devoted? You know, are, are we bunting when we should be going for home runs with all of our heart? Are you afraid? Is fear holding us back in any area of our walk with the Lord? We're going for a summer jump and not a summer slump, amen? Are you open to opportunities? There's opportunities all around us, and we get in ruts. We just do. And miss out on opportunities that the Lord has for us. Today, we're going to ask another question, but first let's take a close look at this letter for the next few minutes. To the angel of the church in Pergamos write, uh, Pergamos is also known as Pergamum, and it was known in its time for a library that contained over 200,000 books, second only to the library in Alexandria. All the main roads of that part of the world converged in this place, which was celebrated for manufacturing. Things like ointments, pottery, tapestries, and parchments were produced. 
It was a very religious town. Idolatry was everywhere. Temples were everywhere. Fabulous temple was made to Zeus, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. And it was a temple to the god of medicine, Asclepios, who was worshipped in the form of a living snake that was fed in the temple. You see the, the symbol for medicine, the snake on the staff? That, the origin of that, I'm sorry to say, my fellow Americans, isn't in the brazen serpent of Moses. <laughs> it goes back to Greek, to Greek uh, paganism. Um, so this was the town where this powerful church dwelt. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. This is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Word made flesh. He has some things to say, and we would do well to heed them. Here's an artist's conception from the ruins of part of the skyline of this fabulous city that was torn down due to conquest, but a fabulous city of Pergamus or Pergamon. Uh, the remnant of rem, the uh, community remaining of this is called Bergamon now there in Turkey. All right, verse 13, Jesus says, I know your works and where you dwell. He, he knew, Jesus notices where we live and what we're doing. And this place was not a good place. Um, I don't want to get spooky, but I think there are some places that have more demonic influence in other places and so there is a place for spiritual warfare not that i'm into taking authority over every demon within a 21 mile radius of my voice pastor that used to pray that in this city is no longer here and the church no longer exists i'm not for picking fights with demons but when they get in the way we deal with them and the key to victory over the devil is making sure he has no place in me Without a cause, a curse can't alight, right? That's what the proverb says. So if some guy in town's trying to work incantations and witchcraft against you, have no fear if your heart is pure before the Lord. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Jesus did not like this town. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Here they are in Satan's hometown holding fast to their faith in Jesus. They did not deny their faith in him. Even in the days when Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. We're not sure exactly how Antipas was killed, but we believe he was burned. They burned the guy. He must have been someone they all loved, and it really shook this congregation up. The Lord says, you hold fast my name. It's in the present active tenses of the Greek, which means... To keep on holding. You're continuing to hold your faith in my name. This church refused to declare Caesar as Lord. In the Greek, they refused to say Kyrios Kaiser. But they continued they continue to say Kyrios Jesus. Jesus is Lord. They stood true against Caesar worship, which was highly celebrated in this town. The town known as a place where Satan dwells. A lot of the ruins from this community, for some reason, are in a museum in Berlin. The Pergamon Museum there in Berlin on 
uh, Museum Island. And there they rebuilt what may very well be the throne of Satan that Jesus was referring to. And it was a temple to Zeus. Here it is. You can find this online. It's over 40 foot tall. It took 20 years to reassemble it. It was so destroyed and fragmented, they hauled it to Berlin and began to rebuild it. And it was a 20-year project. So you can go see this thing that may have been built for the glory of Zeus, who Satan used as his puppet god or goddess. Verse 14, Jesus says, But I have a few things against you. All right, He's, he's built a sandwich. He's given them the bread. <laughs> Here comes the meat. You guys are doing good. You're being faithful in my name. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold to the teaching or the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. In the book of Numbers, there is a story of Israel's journey through the wilderness, you know, part of their Exodus journey to get to the promised land. And everywhere they went, the kings were threatened. And this particular king was highly threatened by them. His name was Balak. And he paid a prophet to come to him to begin to prophesy doom and gloom upon the children of Israel. And on his journey there, uh, an angel was sent by the Lord to kill him, and his donkey refused to move, and he beat his donkey. Let me just... Let's look at this a little more. Here's a story of him beating his donkey. It's a funny story. The donkey had more sense than him, and actually a voice came out of the donkey. Uh, God spoke to him through the donkey. Um, and, and so the Lord did permit Balaam to go, but he did not allow him to speak any ill of the children of Israel. He could only speak blessings. And what he said, there's some interesting things. There's even some things he said, I believe, that point to the Messiah. Incredible prophet. So he failed to do what he was paid to do. You know, I think we have some Balaam going on in our day. Send your $50 and I'll give you a prophecy. Late night TV one night, I saw an infomercial on this guy selling prophecies for money. This is what he was doing, but God did not permit him to do it. So what this scripture alludes to, and also in the book of Numbers, is a verse that alludes to what Balaam did to bring about the defeat of Israel. And here's what I think he did. Because we see it actually happening in the next chapter. He told Balak, God will not allow me to speak ill of his people. But if you want to turn him against them, I'll tell you how. Sin in the hookers. Destroy their marriages, and God will turn against them. And that's what happened. That's what happened. So were there people in this church seeking to use sexual immorality to gain advantage? I'm not sure. But there definitely was something going on that Lord Jesus did not like. This you also have, those who hold the doctrine or the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The commentaries have two different views of this. Nikolai means to oppress the people. 
And both could be true at the same time. And also the belief that Nicolaitans taught that the only way for you to have victory over sin is to experience sin, to explore it in all of its sensual uh, depravity so that you would know how to live righteous. Well, that will bring ruin to our lives, won't it? Jesus hated that. And he says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So this was serious business to deal with these things in the church. Uh, I, bas- I basically believe the bottom line is this is sinful, belief, sinful activity or sinful teaching and beliefs that led people astray, away from the simplicity of devotion to Jesus. Verse 17, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Manna was the bread that the children of Israel were fed with that came from heaven. It was called angel's food. So this is a special blessing that is, that is given to those who overcome. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. There's an old hymn. Uh, who's heard the old hymn, There's a New Name Written Down in Glory? And it's mine, oh yes, it's mine. And the white-robed angels sing the story, A sinner has, um, has come home, For there's a new name written down in glory, And it's mine, oh yes, it's mine. With my sins forgiven, I am bound for heaven, Never more to roam. Who remembers that? Now, you may have come from the church that said, there's a new name written down in glory. I was raised in Pentecost. We spread, we sped everything up. Remember the song? Now let us have a little talk with Jesus. Remember that? We sang it. Now let us have a little talk with Jesus. Let us tell them all about. Anyway, little, little trivia there, very little. He says, I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written. What is this white stone business? I preached this, I think, last year, a sermon entitled Jesus' Reward. I won't preach the whole thing. But to give someone a white stone was to honor them. In Hebrew Jewish culture, to honor someone's memory, you go to their grave and put a white stone on it. You want to see a picture of Schindler's grave? They have to keep it swept so you can see his name because it just literally gets covered every year with stones. So the Lord promises to honor those who overcome. Honor us. While we would hopefully never allow the spiritual problems this congregation had, is there possibly some influence from our culture that could creep in and gradually draw us away from pure devotion to God for our lives? Our question today is, are you aware? Aware are you, aware are you, aware are you, aware? Romans 12 tells us, do not be conformed to this world, verse 2, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable 
and perfect will of God. The New Living Translation says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. The contemporary English version says it like this, Don't be like the people of this world, but let God change the way you think. Then you will know how to do everything that is good and pleasing to Him. The message says, Don't be so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. Amen? And it is possible for the world in which we live to have influence upon us. Uh, it's coming at us in media all the time. Whether you're in your car or at your mailbox or in front of your TV or computer or standing in the grocery store line, the world's influence is coming at us continually. Whether you're in the bar or the restaurant or on the job around the water cooler, the world's influence is coming at us. And we would be a bit well to take heed because it is a very shallow, a very shallow culture without any depth. It may whet our appetites, but in the long run it's going to leave us hungry and destitute. Only Jesus can satisfy. What is the basic philosophy of the world? It's appease your flesh. If it feels good, do it, the hippies used to say. Um, was it Burger King that says, have it your way? McDonald's, you deserve a break today. Uh, advertising is all about a, a generating within us a feeling of entitlement and then an easy way to, to receive what we want. There's a philosophy behind this that I think goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Eat of this fruit and you can be your own God. Problem is, if everybody's pursuing that, everybody's not going to make it. So there's a lot of hurt in the world. That's part of what's happening in our economy. Too many people racing for the top, taking the shortcut. In 1943, a psychologist wrote a paper entitled The Theory of Human Motivation, which he subsequently extended to include his observations of humans' innate curiosity. He studied people such as Albert Einstein and the healthiest 1% of the college student population at that time. And this is what he came up with. This is the hierarchy of needs. This should be our purpose. If you take... Any psychology at all, they'll have a lesson where they'll look at this. That we have our needs, biological and physiological. We have our needs for safety and well-being. We have our needs to belong and to be loved. We have our needs for self-esteem and our needs to be self-actualized. 
And this stuff's being pumped into us through the culture, and yet the counselors are busier than they've ever been before. Psychologists and psychiatrists and, and uh, depression drugs sell higher than they've ever sold before because we cannot actualize ourselves and be happy. You'll wind up lonely. It's lonely up at the top. This is what's happening in our culture. Are you aware of that? You know how to boil a frog in a kettle that's open without him jumping out? I've heard you just make sure the water's lukewarm and then gradually turn up the temperature and he'll never know the difference because it happens gradually. I never did that. I did put a frog in a jar of alcohol. He seemed to be happy in there until it <laughs> permeated him, and then I could reproduce the biology experiment I did at school at home to show my siblings. So Maslow's hierarchy of needs has been modified to include spiritual needs. Because it was, it was neglecting that, wasn't it? So here's the modification. You have your physiological needs, your security needs, your social needs, your self-esteem needs, your self-actualization, which is trumped by self-transcendence. Now we are spiritual. Gag me with a spoon This will leave us empty, dry, and thirsty. And like an addiction that promises more than it produces, the more you pursue it, the less return you'll get. It's a rat, hamster, in a wheel. It's going nowhere. Oh, I'm, somebody asked the hippie what he was doing. He says, I'm trying to find myself. And when I find myself, that's who I'm going to be. <laughs> I have a lot of hippie jokes. Because I grew up in a church that hated hippies. So they preached against them all the time. So they're just, they're just in there. <laughs> I'm trying to find myself. I'm looking for myself. The highest goal of God is looking for Him. Trying to find God. And in Him you'll find unconditional love. You'll find acceptance. You'll find esteem. Esteem. You'll, you'll find that He esteems you as a joint heir with His Son. As He esteems you with the righteousness of Christ. This is not something you generated or pumped up or earned it's just revealed and received. This is a journey that we're on to heaven is to know more about Him. So are you aware of the war that's happening in the background, of the strings that are, that are continually and repeatedly attempted to be tied to you to make you part of the world's puppet? I think if anybody made it to the top, we could say Michael Jackson did, didn't we? 
He did some really dumb stuff with kids. Whether he was guilty or not, it's plain stupid to have kids in your house, in your bedroom, with nobody else there. I mean, you're just asking for problems. The point is, he died a miserable man. The world honors him now. I wonder where all those friends were the day before he died. Anyway, don't want to, don't want to get into that. I'm not bashing the man, I'm just saying, this doesn't work. Sounds good. In conclusion... People who have reached the top are finding out that there's more to life than being self-actualized. Here's a testimony of a man named Brian Welch who quit the rock group Corn. At the pinnacle of his career, addicted to methamphetamines, having lost his woman to death because of her addiction, having a little girl to raise, knowing he's got a problem in loving her the way she needs to be loved by a dad, hearing her sing the horrible songs he has written, he is horrified. And in that context, he finds Jesus and becomes Christ-actualized and finds out that it's not about us being number one. It's about him being number one. We are second, always will be. He is first. Watch this. My dream came true way more than I dreamt about. I, got, I made more money. I played bigger shows. I mean, houses, cars. I tried drugs. I tried sex. I tried everything to try to get pleasure out of this life. And I thought that I could fulfill my life with all this stuff by, by having my dream come true. And it came true, but it didn't fulfill it. When Christ came in, that feeling, he gives you the gift of understanding life, which is everything was created for Christ and by him. And we we're created to be with him. And it's the most incredible feeling because you're where you belong. And contentment is given to you in life because you don't have to look anywhere else. And you're exactly where you need to be. And the question about life is answered. I'm Brian Head Welch, and I am second. Abraham Maslow, I do not claim to be the prophet of this generation. He simply put on paper in an organized form what the theology of the world is. The remedy to this is this. I lay down my life, become second, so that he might be first. Because he made himself last so that we could be made first to receive the benefits of his offering, to pay the penalty, receive the punishment for our sins. Jesus has done that for us. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for opening our eyes to the world around us that we might be aware that it's the love of God that the world needs more than the love of self. Lord, we recognize the world sees its needs, but we cannot meet our own needs. <laughs> you created that vacuum in us that only you can fill. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are believers here that are being swayed by the world, that they would become aware of what's happening, the source to the strife that may be in their home or the source to the depression that's in their own heart. I pray, Lord, that you would enable us to do what you told the church in Pergamos to do, to repent, to not deny your name, to remain loyal to you, to allow the cross to be a reality in our life, Lord, as we lay, it out, lay down our lives and let you be first, loving others with all that is in us as you enable us, Lord. And, Lord, I pray for those who have pursued the world and they see the emptiness of it and they're here today to hear some good news. I pray, Lord, that they would see like they've never seen before, that you love them, that you care for them, and that you have set your affection upon them so that they could receive more than self-esteem, but they, that they could receive the esteem of God in Jesus' name. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to earth, lived a perfect life, and died a death you did not deserve so that we could put faith in what you 